Hello, movie fans, and happy St. Patrick's Day Eve from those of us about to give you our spoiler-laden 125th edition of Scoring at the Movies. That's 125. I'm the jittery brunette who has a black belt, but not that kind of black belt, just a normal kind of buckle belt you can get at Walmart. Ryan Ellis. And here's the student of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu? Did I say that right? Who has been saying ever since I met him that a man distracted is a man defeated. Officer Joe, Chris Gregorio. Thank you, Ryan. You know, I had to make a quick pit stop at my local illicit pharmacy on the way over here, but I got there just before 8 o'clock, so I was able to fill my prescription, and I am wired and ready to go now. <laughs> now, you mentioned you have that black belt, but quite unlike the belts in this movie, they do not keep your pants up, and that is often why I'm a man distracted, because, <laughs> boy howdy, your pants find their way down an awful lot. It's one of the many memorable lines, though, in the film that David Mamet wrote and directed. That's what a black belt does. Keeps your pants up and that's all. I've got a lot of thoughts about this movie. One of them being, I didn't even realize it was a Mammoth movie until I watched it again this time. It is a movie that has quite a few really good lines, especially I found in the first half of it. Yeah. That's one of them. I also really love the line, insist upon the move, insist upon the move. I think one of the tropes of sports is imposing your will on the opponent. You hear that all the time in team sports of all kinds. It's like a commentator's go-to phrase often. And this was just a really interesting way to take that same kind of idea. You want the fight to go the way you want it to go, not the way your opponent wants it to go. So impose your will upon them. But instead of using that cliched phrase, it was insist upon the move, right? Just pushing your will upon your opponent. I don't know why that stuck out to me so strongly, but I really liked that as a turn of phrase. It felt organic to the character. Go ahead. You've got tea there, I'm guessing. I do. I'm getting so choked up about my love for that insist upon the move <laughs> phrase that I'm going to have to take a swig of it right now. <laughs> well, I've just got water. I'll be going to work in a couple of hours. One thing about Mamet, I think this has always been the case when he writes, because he's written movies plenty of times without directing them, but of course sure. he did both in this case. He uses lines, repeats them, sometimes over and over again. There's always an escape. You know the escape. Right. Mike says that several times, I think in the opening scene, when Officer Joe is trying to win a fight. There's always an escape. You know the escape. But yeah, Mamet is known for his writing, and a damn good writer for that matter. Hmm. Have you seen very many of his movies as a director? You maybe don't recognize what they are. I've seen a number of his movies. Spartan. I really like that one. State in Maine. That's a lot of fun. That's a yeah. funny film. I saw this movie when it came out. Not, so did I. Not in the theater, I don't think. I think I saw it when it released on DVD shortly after. But I was, and still am, a big fan of... The man whose name I will never okay. be able to pronounce. I said two weeks ago, it's phonetic, except for the I. So think of C-H-E, and you've got Chiwetel Ejiofor. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Right there, look there, see? So it's C-H-I-W-E-T-E-L, Chiwetel, but Chiwetel, and then Ejiofor is exactly like it looks All like. Right, I'm just going to call him Chewy, and we're going to go over <laughs> Or Mike. Or Mike. I love how he's Mike Terry, this guy, who's also an Englishman. That's what Chiwetel Ejiofor is. He's English. Okay, that's a good English a boring name like Mike Terry. Yeah. I've always loved him since I saw him. I think the first time I might have actually really noticed him as an actor was in Serenity. 
I was a huge fan of that TV series, Firefly. And then when the movie came out, I saw that like three times in the theater. I really loved that movie. And the character he plays in that movie is in many ways a lot like the Mike Terry character that I guess this comes out like three or four years after. It was three years after, yeah. Yeah. In both instances, he plays a man of utter conviction who is unwilling to bend except in the most extreme circumstances. However, he is able to adapt to a change in circumstances. And I think that's a key thing in both characters. He has his principles. He has his principles. Joe's wife is mad about that. Because Joe kills himself, not because of Mike, and not because of Mike's principles, but certainly partly that. Yeah. The code of the warrior comes up, and also he didn't want to bring dishonor to the Academy, is what Joe said. Yeah, that's right. And one of the performances I did like a lot was actually Joe's wife. As odd an arc as those two characters, Joe and his wife, have through this movie at times, the way that the actress playing his wife performed it... No nonsense. There was no hysterics, Mm -hmm. right? She played it in a way that was believable to me. It would be like a spouse in grief, not entirely logical. She's ranting and tearing Mike apart really unfairly, but Mm -hmm. you can understand she's just looking to lash out at somebody and he happens to be somewhat involved in what happened to Mike. Not directly, but somewhat involved. You're going to pay my bills? Who's going to pay my bills? Just like shoves the bills in his pocket Mm -hmm. and you pay my bills. You know, I like that. I don't know why. It was an understated kind of rant. That's why Mike did sign up for the tournament after all as much as anything else. Yeah. The actress is Kathy Colin Ryan. I don't recognize that name. No, she plays either. Jeannie Collins and Joe Collins, Max Martini. He does a pretty good job. He was in Saving Private Ryan not that long, well, about 10 years, I guess, before this yeah. film. And then does blow his own head off. All right, well, let's go back and I'll set it up. So Cinta Roja, as it was known in Argentina, Cinta Roja. <laughs> Red good. Belt, I like that. Was released by Sony Pictures Classics 15 years ago on May 9th, 2008. It didn't even make back half its small budget, although I contributed a few bucks to the box office take because I did see this on the big screen. In the spring, and I liked it. I gave it three stars at the time. The critics on Rotten Tomatoes, they like it just barely. 67% of them said it was a good film, so that's a fresh tomato. 65% of audiences. The average from the critics was 6.3 to 10, and there are 146 reviews on the site. Most Mammoth picks, by the way, directing and or writing, get fresh tomatoes, and some are very strong fresh tomatoes. So this is one of his mediocre ratings. Sure. This film wasn't successful, like I said, though. We've done a lot of movies from 2008, and they're all more successful than this was. This was 194th in 2008. Semi-Pro was 83rd. Leatherheads was 95th. The Wrestler was 105th. And The Express was 146th. We've covered a lot of those in recent years. Well, Semi-Pro and The Wrestler were quite a long time ago. Yes. And The Wrestler remains probably one of the top five movies we've ever reviewed. I think that's safe to say, yeah. None of those are bad, I don't think. Leatherheads is maybe the worst one. I mean, that's got a lot of charm. Yeah, it was a surprisingly good year for sports movies or sports-adjacent movies anyway. And none of them really performed very well at the box office, Mm -hmm. it sounds like. But they were mostly good. You said three stars when you saw this originally. I don't know how you felt upon rewatching it now. About the same? About the same, okay. I felt this movie was a tale of two halves. It was wildly uneven in its totality. My enjoyment of it was held together mostly by the man <laughs> whose name I saw. Mike, Chew- just call Mike. Okay, by Chewy, by Mike Terry. He's such a good actor. Yeah, and he is. There's like a quiet intensity that is required for this character that he pulls off so perfectly because I think if you do it badly, it comes across as either fake or condescending in its nature. But in his case, in this role, it always comes across as understated. The character comes across as caring and honorable without being judgmental. I think as the movie progresses, at least for me, you can really get a good sense of almost why he is the way he is with respect to the code of honor that is required by jujitsu at its most strict interpretation of the rules of honor of right. the sport. As he learned from the professor a long time ago. Yeah. 
if you're the writer of this, if you're Mamet, there's a real risk, I think, in writing the Mike Terry character in a way that at various points in the movie you have these emotional soliloquies or something. I was a soldier in Iraq or wherever it was he was stationed when he was in the military. You know, I did all these things and this grand omission of guilt. Or he has a drinking problem that he's fighting through the whole movie. Mm -hmm. But we don't get that here. Instead, we get admissions from Mike just off the cuff almost that, yeah, I served in the military. Blink and you miss it type of thing. Yeah. And then later on in the movie, do you want to drink? No, you don't drink. No, I used to drink, but I don't anymore. In movie parlance, that implies he had a problem. You're right. I didn't think of that at the time, but you're right. He probably did have a problem. So this is a man who was not always this pure, honorable warrior guy that he is today. He was a man with demons. He probably did some bad things when he was in the military, but the way he turned his life around and the way he is able to look at himself in the mirror as a good man now is by making sure he does adhere to these principles. Mm. And if I look at the character that way as an audience member, I find myself a lot more sympathetic towards him than if I'm just seeing some guy on the screen who's just being pretentiously honorable all the time for no understandable reason, you know? To me, it's a lot like John Wick. He's an honorable man in a dishonorable world, and you can kind of understand why he is the way he is, why he behaves the way he does, but then why he breaks or at least bends his code of honor when circumstances demand If you push him enough, he will fuck everybody up. Exactly. Look what Mike does backstage trying to get to Randy Couture's character. What's his name again? Dylan Flynn, I believe is his name. Yeah, Dylan Flynn is Randy Couture, an actual MMA guy, of course. A lot of MMA people are involved in this. Mike Goldberg is a commentator or was a commentator for it. He's in this movie too. But Mike wants to tell him what's really going on, and all of them are trying to stop him from doing it, of course. Yeah. But he beats them all up. Yeah. And then the one fight he has that ever means anything, really, is not even in the ring. And that's one thing about the film that is a bit of a disappointment is that it does set up that that's what it's going to be about. But obviously, Mamet didn't care that this movie was not really truly a jujitsu movie in the sense of, here's the big match, like in Bloodsport or Karate Kid or something like that. But also it was a good touch to have it be that these two guys who were trained by the same guy and the professor's mentioned, but we don't really know anything about who he is. Well, sorry, he's not really mentioned that much until the end fight. Right. John Machado, probably, Ricardo Silva. Mm-hmm. And of course, the brother is played by the guy from Lost, Paulo. Remember Nicky and Paulo in Lost? Yep. yep. So Rodrigo Santaro is that guy. We'll give away the ending right now. Of course, people should see the movie. I did say we're going to spoil it. But Mike gets two belts, the ivory belt, which means a lot in their culture. And then he gets the red belt from the professor. Yeah. But it's funny that the professor, unless I missed something, isn't really mentioned until the end at the jiu-jitsu tournament, which is a big part of this movie. They're there. It's kind of like Naked Gun, for example. There's not that much baseball in Naked Gun. We know that. But they're at the ballpark for about a third of the movie, give or take. Yeah. And this is similar. I think about a third of the film. This is not that much longer than Naked Gun. It's about an hour and 40 minutes. Close to a third of this film is at that tournament. But we just don't see very much action. We see one fight where the guy's got to be handicapped when he pulls out the black marble, Yes. which we find out later is rigged. And the guy loses, predictably, when he has his arm tied to his chest. That's got to be tough. If you don't go with a move the right way, your arm could get separated or even broken. Yeah, it's dangerous. And then Mike finds out about this, and that's why he's trying to get to Dylan Flynn to tell him the truth about the tournament and blow it for these guys. The movie ends before he does that. Presumably, though, he does get the microphone and say, this whole thing is rigged. I guess. To start with your comment about the professor stuff, you're right. I think the only explicit mention we get of him and it's not even using him by name is when emily mortimer's character asks what a red belt is and points at the picture of the professor in the academy and mike terry simply says there's only one until that confrontation with silva i don't remember anyway any explicit mention of the professor up until that point you only have to sort of like piece together who they're referring to 
I think it's fine that that's not really a thread that Mamet spends much time painting in too much of a detailed fashion leading up to that moment. I think we can piece it together. There's no, as you know, this thing means, I hate when people do that right. in movies. Yeah. Often with the movies we cover, I complain that... They're too subtle or they expect us to put too many pieces together. Yeah. I complain about it because I feel like it's not enough for a director to omit elements of a script and then just say, well put two and two together. Mm. I think you still have to provide enough subtle hints or breadcrumbs along the way that it makes sense that your average audience member can make that connection. Did this do that for you? Yeah, this one... I think so too. Mostly mostly did. And there's a section of the movie that I'm going to explicitly complain about where it definitely didn't. But in this instance, it did. The biggest issue I had with this ending sequence of the movie, and it's kind of fitting that we talked about it immediately after Rocky Mm V, because very similarly to Rocky V, like you said... He's never in the ring. He's never in the ring. There's boxing in it, but not really. But, but not with the lead, yeah. yeah. And I think that sequence with Mike Terry just wanting to walk out to the ring to speak to Randy Couture's character and make the announcement about the fraud and all of that. And they stole my idea, too. Yeah, that's still in the wind somewhere, but that was one of the best sequences of the movie where he's just almost nonchalantly taking out one by one all these security guys. Nonetheless, by the time he confronts Silva, Silva confronts him more appropriately, I guess, and they have that fight that lasts about three minutes. Mm-hmm. They're all trying to stop him, stop him, stop him. And then he gets to a certain point where he gets side by side with Silva and everyone's like, whoa, okay, we better not go near him now. And then the fight begins and no one makes any effort to break up the fight. They just let these guys brawl in the alleyway of the arena for a while. Because we know Mike is right, but everyone else should think Mike's wrong. Who is this guy to attack one of our star people and the brother of one of the people that organized this tournament? Yeah, in the words of Pitch Meeting Guy... Because the movie has to happen, right? I think that's the only explanation. But anyway, he wins the fight. He goes to the arena and he's about to make the announcement after receiving the ivory belt, which I also thought was a cool moment by the Japanese jujitsu champion that presents the belt. Takeda Morisaki, that's his name. Yeah, so we get the presentation of the ivory belt by Morisaki as he's walking up, which I thought was really cool. And I bought that because if you're buying into this world of honor amongst high-level jujitsu adherents then if this Morisaki character is truly of a Mike Terry kind of cloth and he sees the level of fight and capability in the tunnel, then I'll buy him saying, all right, you are a great fighter. You deserve this. Sure. But I didn't understand why upon his arrival in the ring, he would get this red belt that presumably signifies that he is now the grandmaster of all jujitsu. That I didn't really understand because the Grand Master would have no understanding or no knowledge whatsoever of everything that Mike was going through up until that point, right? Right. Yeah. So there's no, well, this is a man of true honor in the professor's eyes. All he saw was what everyone else saw was a fight in the alleyway. That Mike won. I can accept that for Morisaki, but I find it hard to believe that this guy would then cede Grand Mastership of all jujitsu to this guy based on the one fight he just witnessed. It feels like based on what we heard in passing from Mike over the course of this movie about the professor, again, not necessarily explicitly using that name, but at mm-hmm. least the principles of jujitsu that this guy taught him and all that, there would need to be a demonstration, not just of fighting ability, but of knowledge, of honor, of all these other things. The professor would have no knowledge of all the fraudulent black and white marbles of everything that Mike had gone through up until that point. What also the Silvas are doing in their everyday business too. They're not exactly right. up and up just doing their business at that restaurant, that bar. Exactly. So that felt like Mamet saying, oh crap, I got to find a way to tidily wrap this up in a bow and you know what, we'll just have him present the belt. I think I have an answer for you. Yeah. And it would obviously be a subtle one. But during the fight, or maybe it's just before they start fighting, Ricardo and Mike, mm. Mike implies or even says straight out that they both have a history with the professor. 
so the professor knows them both. And I think that's the answer is that you just beat somebody who was supposed to be the one that would win this tournament logically, even if it wasn't rigged. Ricardo was probably the favorite to win the whole thing. You just beat him, then you're better than the best. You didn't street close. You didn't even do it in the ring. Maybe he knows Ricardo's also either a great fighter. Or, well, he's obviously a great fighter. He knows that much. And maybe he knows that the guy's not the most honorable person anyway. But in any case, Mike just beat somebody who's probably supposed to be the best, at least in this area. So there you go. He has a history with them. That's why it's key. I guess. This might be one of those instances in this movie where I feel like Mamet is, if that's his thinking, that he's trying to be a little bit too coy and subtle about it. Maybe. Even if it's just to add in a single one-off line, quietly said by the professor at the end of the movie, when he's presenting the belt to say, my time is over. Something to indicate. <laughs> like wrestling audiences these days. Clap, 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 clap. You deserve it. Yeah. Clap, 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 clap. <laughs> when somebody does something good, especially a longtime veteran does something good and get a long ovation, yeah. the fans will do that. You deserve it. You know what else would have cleaned up for me a little bit is if in the various scenes we have leading up to the IFC event itself, is some sort of comment. I guess we wouldn't know until the event itself that the professor was going to attend. Mike is surprised by that when he shows up. Mm -hmm. But if somebody just says to him, he's retiring and he's going to cede the red belt to the winner of the tournament or something. That's why he's giving up the red belt is because his whole purpose for being here is to find a successor. And he deems that to be Mike. I don't think that Mamet would want to give that away, though. That it seems I, like it's a stunning shock to anybody that he would give this thing up. I agree with you. I think that's part of why it is kept quiet until the very end of the movie is because he wants the shock value of, oh, there's only one red belt. Holy crap. Right. And now I it's mine. That. A very key thing in this, too, is that David Mamet is a practitioner of jiu-jitsu. He's been studying it for years. Hmm. Edgy Ford did an awful lot of training on this for many months. Look at the shape he's in. Although most he actors looks, these days are in great good. shape. Yeah. But he trained an awful lot to the point where he thought, let's have a friendly sparring match, Dave. Apparently, Mamet put all of his weight with his own feet on Edgy Ford's feet and said, the fight is over. <laughs> because he knew enough, he'd been doing enough along himself, that this young guy, I will beat you. Mammoth's probably 20 years older than Ejiofor, yeah. but he knew the fight was over. So the guy who made the movie knows a lot about this stuff, and maybe that's another reason why he was so subtle, is he didn't think yeah. he had to explain everything. We've watched a lot of sports movies, well, obviously sports. We've watched a lot of movies in this podcast where we wonder if the writer, writers, director, and the cast know anything about this. Rookie of the Year, I always point to that because that movie knew nothing about baseball. <laughs> yeah, But maybe Mamet knew too much about this subject and didn't think he had to tell us some of these things. I think you're probably bang on with that. It's kind of the blindered, inadvertent blindered approach that anybody who is intimately familiar with some subject matter or another, there's always going to be details that are just so burned into your brain that you don't even think to explain them to other people, but you just know them innately. And I think maybe there's some of that coming across here. The flip side to that is a lot of what I do like about this movie absent the structure of the back half of it where we don't really get that climactic fight in the way you would expect from a very color of money-esque we don't have Cruz and newman facing off they do but Cruz throws the game because he gets paid off to do it yeah he learned to be a hustler so it made sense but we don't have the big climactic showdown until the movie's about to end i'm back credits and a lot of people were pissed about that at that time that worked for me in color of money fine as i recall the fact that you don't get edge four in the proper no, match proper match does not break the movie for me by any stretch. The flip side of me thinking that maybe being a little too close to the subject matter can cause subtlety to the nth degree for Mamet sometimes is you also get the definite portrayal of jujitsu, not necessarily the striking moves or the grappling moves, because I wouldn't know whether they're good or bad. Mm. But what I really like is the workmanlike no-nonsense approach to self-defense that is inherent in jiu-jitsu in this movie. 
when he's trying to explain to Emily Mortimer, mm-hmm. for instance, can I strike you here? Can I strike you here? Can I strike you here? Where can I strike you? And she steps up close to him. He's like, well, don't stand there in front of somebody. The first rule of not getting hit is don't be in a place where the person can hit you. Run away. <laughs> yeah. Like a Monty Python and Holy Grail. Run away. Run away. It sounds a little bit silly, right? But if you ever watch self-defense stuff, beyond the people that are trying to sell you karate or kickboxing or whatever courses because that's their living, if you're just listening to somebody talk to you about the best way to be safe in a fight, the first thing to tell you is avoid the fight. Just don't get yeah. in a fight. Mr. Miyagi's mentality as well. And it makes sense, right? Because A, it doesn't matter how good you are. You could be the best practitioner of jujitsu in the world, but if you stand up in front of somebody and they pull a gun out and they shoot you, it's the Indiana right. Jones thing. You're going to lose. So just avoid the fight. And then absent that, disable your opponent. That's the thing I love about your story with Mamet. This doesn't have to be a fancy sparring match. I've just totally disabled your ability to defend yourself. I win, right? It doesn't matter if I stood on your feet. It's not fancy. I win. And there's an element of that in this movie, especially in the training sequences. And right off the top, you referenced, you know, the escape, there's always an escape. I loved that training sequence at the beginning of this movie with Joe, with all the grappling. It's so visceral. It's well choreographed and it's slow. And how often do you see a slow... And this is one of the reasons also why I compare it to John Wick is because I think that was one of the first action movies in recent memory anyway that I can remember that flipped the switch from quick jerky action to slow, no-nonsense, I'm just going to kill all of you and get my job done. And it's not going to be flashy necessarily, but you're going to die. Well, long takes too, so we could see him actually do it. That's a key thing in the John Wick movies. Absolutely. And I felt similarly about that grappling sequence between Joe and the guy whose name I can't remember. Snowflake? I think it was Snowflake. It felt like one long take and you see everything. And the fact that it's not super quick means that the actors could really lock in those moves and presumably Mamet being the guy he is. Showed them how to do it. Showed them how to do it. So I thought that was great. Well, a huge key in this movie is the relationship between Joe and Mike. There's Mm -hmm. such friendship and respect there. But that does lead me to the nutshell. So Red Belt in a nutshell. American cop is respectful to a black guy and even looks up to him. What kind of science fiction movie is this? (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. Ouch. (laughs) Harsh but fair. Joe really likes Mike. Well, he loves the idea of jiu-jitsu, and I guess he knows he's with some very special guys doing it in this nondescript little place. Yeah. Window gets broken, and they're nearly busted out monetarily because he can't afford to replace it, and insurance won't because of the act of God thing. But Joe, who's a cop, well, maybe he's not that successful at it. He's not that well off, obviously. I wouldn't say he's an ass-kisser at all, but it's just interesting to see just how much he likes and respects his trainer, as we know that Mike felt about the professor. And, of course, look at Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, same idea. Yeah, I think that comes across well. And if you don't have Joe's character in this movie, I don't think you necessarily get the same impression of Mike either. I think Mike would feel like a cold guy or a colder guy than he actually comes across where not for Joe. Yeah, I think that's fair because the scenes we get with him and his wife are often moments of conflict. And she sells him out at the end. The end of this movie, I mean, the back half of this movie in its entirety, but especially that sequence of moments at the end left me feeling whiplash. Oh, your wife sold me out. Then she's on television mm-hmm. in the middle of the ring giving an interview and smiling. Their marriage is over, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. And there's a sequence of moments where Mike's getting ready for the fight. A lot of sequences of him getting ready, just stretching out with Snowflake. Mike's walking out to the fight. Mike overhears the fraud stuff about the marbles. Mm-hmm. Oh, sees the guy. We saw him earlier do a magic trick with them. Yeah. You found that out. Oh, bang. Okay. Oh, and you're not fighting anymore. Oh, oh, now you are going to fight somebody else again. Because oh, Mortimer slaps him in the face hard. Yeah. yeah. Oh, now you're not, not married anymore. Mm-hmm. What just happened to Mike's life? Oh, my God. <laughs> I like that we don't hear the conversation with him and Emily Mortimer, though, with Laura. Yeah. 
because we don't really need to. He's probably saying, I can't do this and here's why. And yeah. he didn't make her come to this, but still, you inspire me and I'm whatever. You owe something. I don't know why she goes as far as to slap him, but that's one reason why he goes back in. But then he's not going back in to fight. I haven't seen Red Belt in a long time. And if you'd made me guess before the last few sequences, I would have said he goes back and, yeah, I'm going to fight after all. But no, he's not going back to fight. He's only going back to tell the truth. Now, two things i got to ask you. Sure. One is the inciting incident in the whole film. So after Joe has the sparring match, he's mad about the way that went. He's mad at himself, I think is what it is. He's not mad at Mike or the opponent. Right. But in comes Laura. She's frazzled about something that's going on in her life. We find out later she was raped. I don't think that's supposed to be why she was frazzled. No. That doesn't just happen. But anyway, so she's somebody who's a jittery person, like I said in my intro. I'm a jittery brunette. But then Mike says to Joe, take her coat, let her relax and everything. And Joe insists on doing it. Now, Mike just told him to do it, but she doesn't want him to take... She even said, no, don't take my coat. But she's trying to talk to Mike about sideswiping his car. Joe insists again on trying to take the coat. That's when she reaches for the gun and shoots the window out. It's not like the actors did a bad job with it, but I think just the writing of this seems like, how did that happen exactly? Why is the safety not on Joe's gun? You could say she's reacting this way because it's taken her back to the rape, I guess, because the guy came from behind, I guess, as we see her with Mike showing her what she could have done with the knife, step back, grab my hand, stick it into my chest. But I didn't really buy the way that happened. That is one of the flaws of this movie to me is that incident and the Emily Mortimer character's whole arc feels a little bit strained. I even dial it back to the point when she's driving around in the rain. I did love the conversation she's having with somebody on the phone. I don't think we ever find out who she's talking to on the phone at that Mm -hmm. moment. We're never told, oh, I have a spouse or anything like that by her, right? So I don't know who it was. But she says something to the effect of, you told me their pharmacy closes at 8 no normal pharmacy will fill this prescription. They'll demand to see a real prescription. It all implies that she's got some sort of fake prescription she's trying to get filled at some back alley pharmacy, but a back alley pharmacy that has a big neon pharmacy light out front, mind mm. you. I don't know if it was some sort of oxy or something. She's got so much PTSD that she's just dosing herself. That illegally. tracks. That does track. We didn't yet know that she'd had this rape. But at the moment, I thought, okay, well, maybe she's somebody that has experienced trauma, has no financial means or anything like that. But then later we find out she's a successful attorney. She pays for the window. She pays for the window. Which she should do. She's the one who broke it. Absolutely. But if she was financially struggling, I think a lot more of her story makes sense. When we find out she's financially capable, if not successful, maybe successful, we don't know how wealthy she is. Although she's driving a Beamer in that opening sequence, too. I struggle with that because one thing I do know about American medicine is that if you've got money, you can get your drugs. You can go to a psychiatrist and say, I'm hurting here. Give me some whatever. And you'll get it filled. It's not that difficult. I think where the difficulties come in is when you don't have the financial resources and then you reach for shadier means of getting your drugs. Although I did kind of love the fact she sees the guy coming out of the pharmacy and rather than roll down her window and say, hey, hold on a minute, please. She just honks the horn repeatedly at him. <laughs> this will surely make him stop and open his store for me. Ah! <laughs> a night in the rain. Yeah. If we look past that, she bangs off Mike Terry's truck and then I guess just puzzles out that it was parked in front of the dojo, so it must be his. So she walks in. I think part of this was not great writing, but part of it I think was also, at least on the part of Mike Terry's character, I think that was intended to be a little bit of his character. Well, the cover-up, yeah. These guys, Joe doesn't want her to get charged. No, not that. I mean the attitude of it. The whole, take her coat, take her coat. When she says, oh, I don't want, okay. leave me alone. Because there are sequences in this movie where Mike approaches people in a certain ways and it's clear that they don't want his help or they don't want him to do a thing. And he does it anyway because he's constantly trying to help even where that help isn't wanted. And I think this is one of those examples okay. of that. 
I lay the blame more on Joe here than on Mike, because it's one thing for Mike to say, like, take her coat. But when you start approaching somebody, they're like, no, don't touch me. Don't take my coat. I'm fine. Yeah, don't force yourself on that person. Now, I don't know if if you then grab the person's gun and shoot him and why isn't the safety on? It's a questionable sequence of events for sure. But once the window's blown out, that's just the first of like many yeah. sequences that follow from that that require so many unlikely events to take place thereafter. Yeah, the fact he stumbles across Tim Allen, so this big action star, Chet. Yeah. What an interesting name for him, but Chet. <laughs> Who went into that bar because he wanted to get into a fight because he wanted to feel like he's more legitimate as an aging action star. And he's in this movie that's all about fighting. Mike is supposed to be hired as a producer, but I guess that doesn't end up happening because Joe Mantegna blows off the meeting. Right. Now, I don't know about this. Maybe you can answer this question for me. Maybe I'm dumb yet again. But is Mammon implying that maybe not all of this, but a lot of it was a conspiracy with Chet and Jerry and Marty, so Ricky Jay's character, and the Silvas to take the black and white marble idea and then have this tournament? Or was it just a lucky coincidence? Because Jerry, when he comes into that room, when they're trying to sue for stealing the idea, Jerry walks in as if he was always part of this, or at least is now. Yeah. But it's not like Mike and Chet knew each of them were going to be in that bar at the same point, and Mike just helped out because he's a good guy and takes a slash on the shoulder for it, and Chet wants to thank him. But is there something else going on there? Or is it just no. one of those one damn thing after another type situations and it just happens to work out that they get involved or at least Jerry gets involved in stealing this idea from Mike and making it part of the tournament? I don't know if you're dumb. If you're dumb, I'm dumb too because I had almost exactly the same series. You think it's just coincidence then that it wasn't a conspiracy all along? When I backtracked through the movie and thought about the sequence of events, like the whole marble idea that Mike uses as a training technique in his dojo or his academy, I'm not sure what the proper term is in jujitsu, that doesn't come up until after he saves Chet in the bar, right? Mm -hmm. So he saves Chet, they go to dinner, and then it comes up, right? At At Chet's house, right. At Chet's house. So in order for it to be a conspiracy, it has to predate that, right? Because the watch is given to Mike after the bar. Mm -hmm. Mike gives that watch to Joe because Joe was stiffed on the bouncer stuff. The Silvas, yeah. By the Silvas. And all of that stuff predated the marbles. So there was no reason for Jerry to be part of a conspiracy at that stage. Mm -hmm. The first half of this movie I was watching, I was like, you know what? I forgot how much I like Red Belt. It just felt like a real low-key, small-in-scope character piece about this guy and his family and friends. And There's many good actors in this. Many good actors. Some of them doing different things, especially Tim Allen, than they usually did. Absolutely. And I forgot how many good actors were in this, too. That's a good point. And so the first half of it, I'm like, oh, I'm really enjoying this. And then all of a sudden, the whole Chet thing kicks off. And then for like the next 20 to 30 minutes, I was like, what in the holy hell is happening in this movie? The rough sequence of events as I remember them anyway, I have to talk these out because they're so crazy to think about. A, Mike finds out that Joe has been stiffed on the bouncer wages that his brother-in-law owes Joe, right? So he goes to confront the brother-in-law. Brother-in-law says, nuts to you. If you want money, come to my fight that I'm working on. It will be part of the tournament, yeah. Yeah. Mike says, no, competition weakens you, which is an interesting stance that he has True. throughout the movie. And as he's leaving, he bumps into Chet, the movie star, who gets into a fight with the guy from New Girl, which I thought was very funny. Cause yeah, like, Jake Johnson. Yeah. yeah, he plays a goofball in a lot of romantic comedies. So to see him be like a tough in this movie was really funny. And we're also told that Chet 
left behind his usual security and stuff because he wanted to get into a fight because he wanted to punish himself or something for being a philandering ass. Was that what it was? I thought it was because he wanted to feel like a tough guy and also learn how to actually fight. Well, he said later on the set of that war movie something to the effect of, because he was asked by Mike, why did you leave your security behind? And he said, I want to get in a fight, okay? Do you know how hard it is for a guy as famous as me to step out and stuff like that? And to me, that implies he's been trying to get out and sleep around and stuff. Okay. Anyway, he meets Chet, saves him from the bar fight. This is another thing that made no sense to me, is in the bar, Chet mouths off to Jake Johnson. Mm-hmm. The fight starts. Mike, just walking through, grabs the dude that's trying to like stab Chet with like a broken bottle mm-hmm. and says, all right, clear path. I'm walking him out. And then, like, the whole bar jumps on Mike. What the hell is going on there? This is a guy that's clearly trying to break up a fight, and then everybody else in the bar attacks the guy that's trying to break it up? They might have known that guy. He might have been regular there. I guess, but hold on. Why'd you stop my friend from stabbing a movie star, you tool? Right, well, that's true. And then again, they probably would have known Mike, too, because he is married to one of the owner's sister, right? Sister, yes. He is then given the watch by Jerry as a thank you and an invitation to dinner. He then gives the watch to Joe so that Joe can pawn it, pay off his debts, take his wife on a trip. But the watch is hot. But the watch is hot. Which apparently Jerry didn't know either. Yeah, which apparently nobody knew. This was just a coincidence that ultimately led to Joe killing himself Mm. down the line. And anyway, so Chet then goes to dinner. Or rather, Mike goes to Chet's house for dinner. They have a great chat. Mike's wife meets Chet's wife who also happens to be an aficionado of fabrics or something. Right. which is what Sandra does. Sandra, now that, she has an opportunity also. Yeah, so Sandra immediately gets on the phone and buys $30,000 worth of fabric from her connections in Brazil, and then the next day tries to call back the numbers that she was given by Chet's wife and friend. And they ghosted her. Yeah, all of which were out of service immediately. Why is this movie star's wife ghostlighting this poor woman? Ghostlighting, I, I like that. Ghostlighting? Gaslighting. Yeah, <laughs> ghostlighting. Or ghosting, in this case. Ghosting and gaslighting this poor woman. I don't know. That's never explained. What the hell is going on Because at the end, they're all together again. They're all together on stage, yeah. Did you recognize, by the way, Jennifer Grey is one of them? I did not, know. She's Joe Mantegna's wife. Is she really? Dirty Dancing, Jennifer Grey. I didn't recognize her. She must have had the nose surgery by that point. I think so. I don't think she even sounded like she used to sound. And Rebecca Pigeon is Tim Allen's wife. She's David Mamet's real-life wife, and she was in a lot of his movies. Not a great actress. She's got a lot of screen time, actually, in State and Maine, and she's fine. Sure. She's not not a ton of screen time in this movie, though. No. Just just a scene or two. Very little, yeah. And Alicia Braga plays Mike Terry's wife, so Chiwetel's wife. Yeah. She was in City of God. That was her debut. Bev and I covered that. I think it was last year on Have You Ever Seen? We were called Top 100 Project back then. She hasn't been in a ton of movies, and I don't think any other sports movies. Most of these people weren't in any other sports movies. But she's pretty effective as his wife, but obviously a turncoat, although it does say online. I was looking at the Wikipedia stuff before we sat down to see if I missed any key points. It does mention that she's mad he can't provide for her. And the fact he can't pay for a window and this academy is maybe barely getting by. And Sandra, she yeah. looks like she's starting to succeed. She feels like I'm raising a culture where you provide for your family. You're not doing that. And also because you don't want to go against your own principles when you have this opportunity to be in this tournament then I'm going to rat on you if it's going to help me. Maybe she didn't know, but in the end, it helped her get in with Chet's wife after all. Yeah, but it still felt like an overly complicated way to get there because for mm. all of this stuff I've just listed out, that's barely halfway through this weird conspiracy stuff, mm. right? After that dinner, Mike goes to visit Chet on set of this war movie, bumps into a stunt coordinator on set. An old friend. Yeah. An old war buddy. They go through a whole sequence of stuff. He explains some army parlance and things to Chet. Chet's impressed, says, I'm going to make you a producer. At some point along the way, he also explained the training technique with the white and black marbles. Goes back to the house, says, hey, I'm going to be a producer on this movie. I'm going to fax all of this stuff to Jerry. 
So he has it because it's all about authenticity, which is a line I kind of like because it was clearly Mamet saying this movie is all about authenticity, mm, right? Yeah. He sends that stuff off. Then we start finding out about the ghosting stuff. He can't get in touch with Chet. Sandra can't get in touch with the women. He starts seeing these advertisements on television for the upcoming fight using the marbles for the thing that he had just sent to Jerry like 24 hours previously. The lawsuit stuff starts where we find out Emily Mortimer's character is going to represent Mike. There's like a wild 15 minutes of what the heck is happening here because we never see Chet again throughout this whole movie. He's just gone. No, he's at the tournament. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's one of the people that's just watching. I don't think he has any lines, but he's there. Why did he ghost Mike? I don't know. Well, I think because of the watch. I actually find it more interesting, and maybe because he told his wife and then also Jennifer Gray's character, Lucy. Yeah. But the men may have told the wives, you can't be involved with her after all. But if not for that, I have a harder time believing that the women would have ghosted Sandra because her whole thing has nothing to do with Mike's thing. Agreed. It's a different business. Agreed. And they seem like they want to do business with her. But it's got to be because Tim Allen and Joe Mantegna said none of that anymore. I guess, but it felt like an overly complicated way to get there. Like, Mm -hmm. clearly what Mamet is doing is we need Mike to get from struggling jujitsu business owner who does not like competition. He's got this aversion to competition because it weakens the man. To vast conspiracy within this competition. (laughs) Ideally, without the vast conspiracy. But yeah, we need him to get to a point where he's willing to fight at the end, right? And somehow that fight has to be fixed using his training techniques so that he can be the honorable dude that refuses to fight and exposes the whole thing. And they offer to fix all of his fights so he win the tournament altogether. Nope, not going to do that. And that definitely tracks with the way this guy is. Oh, absolutely. But what I don't understand is like, okay, if you need the character to get from that point A to that point B... Why not just something like, we have that inciting incident you described earlier. His windows broke. Emily Mortimer does not pay for it. She can't afford to pay for it in this like alternate universe. Okay. If you want him to bump into Chet, fine, you can do that. You can even still have the watch. Mm-hmm. But all you need really is for Joe to suffer some sort of mishap, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be part of this grand conspiracy. Is unable to provide for his wife. The wife still bitches out Mike. Exactly. Maybe you still have the broken window that's a financial sort of Damocles hanging over Mike's head. And all this piles up to the point where he says, okay, I'll go to the fight. And like I said, you can still have the Chet character so that you can explain the marbles thing. And then that becomes part of the whole honorable exposure of the fixed fights at the end. But all of these weirdly complicated steps in between felt unnecessary. Cut out half of those threads entirely, Mm. and it would be a much cleaner movie. Funny thing is, the movie's not that long, like I said earlier, and yet there's a lot in it. Well, I would be willing to wager a lot of money that there was a heck of a lot more stuff filmed that explained some of these gaps. And was cut out. It was cut out. I would love to see a Rocky IV-style mammoth recut of this movie, maybe involving some of those things, because I never felt like the pace was slow. Far from it. In that middle stretch, I felt harried and rushed because it was just jumping around so much. So I feel like you could easily slide in another 10 minutes of content into that middle sequence to pad out and explain a few of these weird inconsistencies, or at least these moments where we're both having trouble piecing together exactly what happened. And it makes maybe a, a more interesting and deeper movie. Because some of the characters that do get introduced, like, for instance, that friend on the movie set, I felt like, oh, this guy's going to pop up again somewhere, right? No, never see him again. He might be at the fight, but I'm not sure if he is. Or even Snowflake's role in this. When Snowflake is introduced, I'm like, no, this character could be a good guy in this movie, could be a bad guy. And then when we see Mike discover the marble thing at the fight, okay, well, who gave this away? I think it's at that point Mike goes back to the Academy 
and he just stands in the doorway and you have Snowflake sitting there looking guilty, playing with a string or something. And Mike just stares at him for like 10 seconds and then we cut away. My read of that was, oh, Mike knows that was Snowflake. But it wasn't though, it was Jerry. No, it was the wife, right? No, she talked about the broken window. That's what I meant. Not the, Which not, keeps them from being able to sue about the idea. Right. In my read of that staring at Snowflake, it was a Snowflake that discussed he was there with Mike, right, when it happened, mm. as was Sandra in the back office. But my read on that was, oh, so it was Snowflake that gabbed for some reason or another. I don't think Snowflake was there when the window got shot. I think it was just Mike, Joe, and then Sandra in the No, back. he came back. The window gets shot out. He comes walking in the door. He looks at it like, what the hell just happened, right? And But then... Two scenes later, it's Snowflake that is walking with Mike into the ring at the fights. I'm like, oh. We're getting him ready. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like his trainer. So clearly Snowflake was not the person. I guess not, yeah. So what was the intent behind that scene where Mike is just ominously staring at him in the dojo silently for 10 seconds? Well, I agree with you about the thing. They should have had more explanation in this, but it could be one of those things, Mammoth again, just trying to be subtle, saying Mike thinks he's the bad guy, but realizes he's not. Or maybe somehow he was involved, but not as seriously or as bad as Mike would have thought. And realized in the end it's just Jerry because he faxed him the information and didn't make sure it was copyrighted, which I don't think I would think to do either. No. That's one of those moments, that faxing of the information thing. I think that plays with the character because as a guy that is so honorable and straightforward about things, I think I would struggle to believe that he would see duplicity in Jerry. Mm-hmm. I think he's just sending it over saying like, yeah, we're going to use this for authenticity because you know authenticity is the key and never expect that he's going to be double-crossed about yeah, it. Yeah, filmmakers, well, an actor's agent, what's he got to do with any of this stuff? Except right. in the end, he does have something to do with it. So the depiction of the sport seems pretty accurate to me, and it should be, considering Mammoth's involvement in jiu-jitsu, yeah. long time. It's disappointing when we can see Mike in the ring, but obviously that would also defeat Mike's credo that competition isn't fighting because he and Mr. Miyagi have a lot in common that way. That's no true. need to fight anymore. Prove, prove point. <laughs> As for can you score... It's a pretty good-looking cast, but this is not a horny movie. This is not a scorable movie. The tenor of it, as in shape as... Uh, Chuatel, Edge Chuatel, Edge 4, thank you. Hey, you did it! I did it! Say it again. I can't. He's in shape, and he's a great-looking dude, but the tenor of the movie doesn't lend itself to any scorability. I think he and Emily Mortimer are going to do something after the movie's over, though. Because she hugs him, too. He gets a lot of hugs at the end of this film, too. A well, hug I, from the professor, a hug from her. I did get the impression from the movie that he and Sandra are on the outs, he and Emily Mortimer's character are going to be on the ends. on the ends going forward. But in terms of the depiction of the sport, I agree with you. I already described how I really love some of those training montages early on, just the slow competence of the jujitsu on display. The one thing I did want to ask you about this movie in particular is how you felt about this random chance element of handicapping a fighter. If you were a fan of any sport, fighting or otherwise. I wouldn't want to see that. I wouldn't want to see it either. I want to see the two people to be the best they can. Exactly. Go head-to-head, or if it's teams, have the teams go head-to-head, and nobody's handicapped. I don't want to see a baseball game where one team has a three-run lead when the game starts. I felt exactly Even if my team benefits from that. That's right. So Mike's idea sucks then. (laughs) Well, no, Mike's idea makes sense as he describes it as a training mechanism, but the number of times we get some of the announcers here talking to each other, selling up, oh, what do you think of this? Oh, it's great. What does Couture say? Boxing is as dead as Woodrow Wilson, Uh. which is a weird line to pull out in any circumstance. But this is in the era of MMA's explosion, too, when this movie came out. So even if boxing is dead, MMA is on the rise. But I can't imagine a true MMA fan that would show up to the title fight or something and then find out that one of the competitors is going to have his arm strapped to his chest the whole time and be happy about that. Mm -hmm. I don't even think the fighters would be happy to participate in that because if I win... Everyone's going to tell me... It feels tainted. It feels tainted. If I lose, I'll feel wrong. Got screwed, yeah. 
who wins? Nobody wins. I think everybody loses, (laughs) except from the fixing element of that. And even that felt like a stretch to me. We get the sleight of hand guy doing it in this Mm -hmm. case. But is this guy going to be the guy at every fight, like the Bruce (laughs) Buffer announcer at every fight going forward, just sleight of handing everything all the time? Maybe so. Feels like a stretch, but maybe. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I know that Mamet had to come up with a concept that the Jerry character would steal from Mike, and that would be the motivation and stuff. But it just felt like a bad sports idea. So as for a score, I gave it three to four back in 2008, and I'll give it a seven out of ten now. I enjoyed it well enough. We yeah. definitely have some issues with it, but I think the actors are damn good, and I like that it isn't completely in your face with everything, with that blaring horn of, this is what we mean, yeah. even though we've been hacking on it for about 20 minutes at least, about how it's maybe a little too subtle. But I'll credit the guy who made the movie. That's the way he wants to work. It's funny, though, because with his lines of dialogue in so many of the films that he's written, maybe all of them, he does repeat himself. Yeah. Which is over-explaining something if you think about it. <laughs> the Glengarry Lees, that phrase is used so many times in Glengarry Glen Ross. And then we talked about some of the lines that are repeated so often here. And yet, plot points, figure it out for yourself. <laughs> yeah. But in some ways, I also respect that he did that. I respect the attempt at this movie. I get what he's going for. Like I said off the top, this is all about a man of total honor in an honorless society. I think Mamet thinks that's what he is too. If this is meant to be a pet project for Mamet, where he's sort of envisioning himself in the Mike Terry I respect him as a filmmaker, but he's an asshole, I think. Could well be. I respect the story he's trying to tell, and I feel like it's of a vein of John Wick, or even like a Kung Fu, the television series Kung Fu kind of thing. Or Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon. I'm down with that kind of thing. But to me, it's a wildly uneven movie. I already said It's like a tale of two halves for me. Like the first half, I love. But once all the wild conspiracy stuff just starts happening, bang, 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 I have a little bit of a harder time with the movie, but throughout it all. You're engaged. I'm gearing up for it. Chiwetel Ejiofor? You did it. Yes. I listened, by the way, when he was nominated for 12 Years a Slave. I think it's Charlize Theron, but whoever it is that introduces his name. Yeah. I actually know Jennifer Lawrence because she won the year before. So she announces all the nominees and he was up for that. He didn't win, but he was up for that award. And that's how she said it. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. I'll pat myself on the back then. (laughs) For me, he's the thread that just keeps it all going because he is so good. I'm down for like a six and a half to seven out of 10 for sure. Okay. It is a flawed movie. The thing that sticks with me out of all of it, especially when you mention the fact that Mamet does repeat stuff, right? And yeah, he does repeat a number of lines in this movie. And the one that you pointed out earlier is, you know, the escape, there's always an escape. That feels like foreshadowing in this instance. And I don't know if Mike found the escape. Yes, he did. When he's going up against Ricardo, he's in a chokehold from behind, but he runs up the wall and then gets in behind him. Slow motion, in fact. Oh, okay. That's the escape. I was thinking from like a bigger picture, how does he escape the financial situation? That he doesn't know. (laughs) The only thing I can think of is if he becomes the red belt for this sport of jujitsu. Cash in. Well, does that carry with it some sort of stipend? I don't know. Promotional, at least. Maybe that was it. Like Rubber Man and Kingpin. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Suddenly Mike Terry is sponsored by Trojan Condoms. Sandra. Okay. This is only getting divided one way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. See, I didn't even pick up on that. That fight with Silva did not feel like a big enough climactic event in the movie for it to be the resolution to that echoing of there's always an escape, you know the Mm -hmm. escape. But fair enough. Fair point. Anyway, six and a half, seven out of ten seems fair to me. And I mentioned 12 Years a Slave, and Bab and I are covering that again. We covered it briefly years ago, what we called then the Now Playing Project podcast, because we just saw a movie and reviewed it right away after we came home. That'll be at the end of March. We're posting this in the middle of March, so in a couple of weeks, if you want to hear us talk about, Bev and I talk about Chiwetel Ejiofor in probably his landmark movie so far. Yep. Look for that on Have You Ever Seen. 
As for you and I, in two weeks, it will be March 30th, so that means spring is officially here. But it also means that the 2023 Major League Baseball season will be kicking off that very day. So let's cover our 20th baseball movie and one of the handful of sequels we've talked about on this channel. We haven't really gone into that many sequels. Major League 2. So we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. The email address is ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. Meantime, take her easy, Mike, and maybe go buy some new pants. You got a lot of belts, so you're going to need some new pants.